Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, Hope Chapel. Happy Lord's Day, this fine Sunday. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, and we're going to continue where we left off in our study last weekend. Luke writes, beginning at verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you. Since you yourselves thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. Amen, church? Last week, we looked in the first half of chapter 13 at Paul's first sermon, the Apostle Paul's first recorded gospel sermon in the book of Acts and uh, in the history of the early church. And in that first gospel sermon, um, Paul introduced what he called good news, a message of good news, a gospel of good news, a message of salvation. And in that message of salvation, Paul declared to the people in the synagogue God's offering of of freedom and of forgiveness through faith in Jesus. And that this freedom or this justification, this right standing before God, this, this ability to stand before God on the day of judgment and be declared completely free and innocent and guiltless, that that justification, that freedom is something that's received purely by faith, that it's not something that is achieved by observing the the Mosaic law, that it's not something that is earned by what we bring to God, but rather it's something that is earned by someone external to us, rather it's something that is achieved through the person and work of Jesus, And, and that merely by believing in Him, His righteousness is credited to us, and all of our sins were credited to Him on the cross. As Protestants, we refer to this great doctrine as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. One of my favorite modern theologians, uh, Albert Moeller, has said that justification by faith alone is not kind of one doctrine among many Christian doctrines, rather it is the gospel itself. And so, in Acts chapter 13, we see Paul's first sermon, and in that first sermon, he enunciates very clearly the central doctrine of justification that is central to the gospel that is the gospel. And so, as we turn to this passage this weekend, what we are looking at, what Luke is recording and conveying for us are the events that follow from the aftermath of that first great epic gospel sermon. Are you with me? Now, I want to suggest that the aftermath of Paul's preaching can teach us at least three gospel principles. And the first one is, of course, that the gospel is powerful. So, in the beginning of this passage, we're going to see the power of the gospel on display. 
But it also teaches us about God's gospel plan, that God has decreed, that he has planned for the gospel to proceed to every tongue, tribe, and nation in a certain way. So God has a gospel plan. But finally, whenever the gospel is advanced and whenever the power of gospel is on display, and as God's plan for the gospel progresses, we always will observe gospel persecution as the darkness sees, sees, seeks to push back against it. So I want to open by looking at gospel power. The passage, passage opens up in verse 40, 42, and Luke says this, He says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now, I just have to paint a little picture. What Luke is saying is that as they went out of the synagogue. So literally, Paul has just finished preaching that sermon that we looked at last week. And he has just finished proclaiming for the first time in Antioch of Pisidia, in this region, the gospel of Jesus. And literally... As they are walking out of the synagogue, it's like this mic, he like drops the microphone, he's walking out of the synagogue, and the people are begging him that he will come back to church next weekend and reiterate this message, recapitulate this message, teach them the gospel again. As I look at this verse, as a preacher, I have to confess that these words bring great joy to my heart right? Because as a preacher, this is pretty much the best case scenario. Like the best case scenario is you come in and you preach the gospel, which means that you preach the bad news first, then you preach the good news. Everybody receives it. They're like hanging onto your leg as you're trying to make your way out of the auditorium. Like, please come back next week. Usually I'm begging you to come back next week. They're begging them, come back, there's this invitation to return. But I want us to look more closely at the people's invitation. What they say is, what Luke says is that that they want them to come back so that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. These things. What is the referent of these things? What do these things refer to? Well, these things refer to the gospel message. That term refers to the word of the Lord, to the word of God, which is going to be reiterated four times in this passage. They want to hear the gospel. And so I want to point out that as the gospel comes to this region, Antioch and Pisidia, in the greater area of Galatia in the Roman world, as the gospel comes, Paul and Barnabas walk and they preach this sermon. They're not like the well-known Roman uh, Greco-Roman rhetoricians, the, the orators, those professional people who would go from place to place, travel around, and make a living by giving impressive speeches, um, persuasive speeches, by demonstrating uh, really impressive oratory prowess. No, 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 that's, that's not what's going on here. This, this isn't two guys who come in and preach so persuasively and powerfully because they're so skilled that the people beg them to come back. No, no, what Luke is telling us is that the people begged them to come back because they were captured by the message of Jesus. They were captured by the gospel message. You see, this was a message unlike anything that they had ever heard before in their lives. The Jews had not heard this message. It was the fulfillment of everything they had heard and believed. The Gentiles, the God-fearers who were there, who were seeking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and making converting to Judaism, they had not heard a message like this. And here is where it all turned for these people in this synagogue. Back in Paul's sermon in verse 39, he said, And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed, is justified, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That was a reality and paradigm-altering and shattering statement for all those people who heard that message. You see, right standing with God does not come by our observance of His law. Rather, freedom or right standing with God comes only through belief in Jesus. So all these Jews are gathered, and what they're hearing, in other words, is that the law law that God gave to his people through Moses at Sinai, the law which had become kind of an essential element of their religious, national, and personal identity, that that was not the mechanism that saved them, but rather it was that which God used 
to reveal to them their need to be saved. Take it one step further. It was that which real, revealed to them the reality they stood condemned under God's law. That's a radical proposition. And then, so then Paul tells them that rather than being saved by the law, what they really need, and what they really need is not to just obey the law better, but rather what they need, their whole eternal destiny depends upon the righteousness, the keeping of the law of another, of somebody else, in, in the substitutionary punishment of another. So they're like utterly blown away and scandalized and captivated by this message. Now we see that this is a powerful message. The gospel is powerful. It's powerful in two respects. It's powerful because it's the power of God to save, but it's also powerful because it divides. And I want us to look at these two contrasting truths. First, the gospel is the power of salvation. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. Look with me at verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, so church is over now, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So not only after preaching this sermon are people begging him to come back, but what Luke is recording here is that is as church is getting out, as everybody's leaving, these people are following Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are interacting with, they're speaking with them, and they're urging them. They're calling them. They're exhorting them. They're they're encouraging them to do what? To continue in the grace of God. So they've heard the gospel. There's some sense in which they've received the gospel, and now they're being called to continue in the gospel and the grace of God. Do you think that these people were saved at this point? How many think that they were saved? How many do not think that they were saved? So many of you are afraid to participate. I'm working hard up here. You need to work hard down there. I think that they were saved because I don't think that you can, I I don't think that you can continue from a place that you're not already at. Does that make sense? What did Jesus say about continuing? Jesus says that he who continues to the end, he who perseveres to the end will be what? Saved. Right, And so I, I think that the Bible's pretty clear, and I think that Jesus is clear, that continuing, this quality that we continue in the grace of God, that we walk with Jesus, that we stay with Jesus, this quality of continuing is a marker of genuine conversion. The person who's been genuinely converted to Christ, the person who's been genuinely saved will continue in faith. They will continue in repentance, not so that they'll be saved, not so that they'll get new life, but because they are saved, because they've been given new life. And by the way, continuing also implies something. Continuing in grace also implies growing in grace. And so here's some baby Christians. They've just received the gospel. God has opened their eyes and ears to hear and to receive the gospel, and and Paul encourages them to, to continue And Paul encourages them to grow, to grow in grace. Continuing implies that we're growing in grace, that we're growing in personal holiness, that we're growing in our knowledge, in our desire for God's word. Continuing implies that we're growing in our concern for the lost, that that our eternal perspective about this life is growing, that we're growing in discipleship to Jesus. Take that one step further, that we're not only growing in our discipleship to Jesus, but that we are also growing in our desire to make disciples of Jesus. You see, continuing in the grace of God implies more than just coming back to synagogue every Sabbath. Continuing in the grace of God implies more than just coming to church every Sunday. It implies growing. It implies becoming more like Jesus. I think that we see an example of this very tangibly, but also kind of just we, get, we, we catch a quick glimpse of it here in this passage. Uh, in the example of Paul himself, I, see, I think we see a picture of his profoundly pastoral heart. Now, when I think of Paul, I think of like this, this really manly, like awesome, bad missionary church planter, like the tough dude. I mean, 
I always, I always like to say that Luke, had, Luke was a medical doctor. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Like Luke had to follow Paul around because he was getting beat up so much. He's out there planting churches. He's out there laboring for the gospel, you know, getting his teeth kicked in, getting beat, and Luke's got to you know, fix him up. Paul gets up. He keeps going. I th- tend to think of him like this tough dude. It's like a man's man. I don't tend to think of him as like this tender figure. But what do we see here? We see that, that unlike many of kind of the, the Western American celebrity mega church pastors who just kind of come out from behind the stage, deliver an impressive TED talk on scripture, and then walk back out behind the stage, never to be seen again by the sheep that they're called to shepherd, what do we see Paul do? He walks into the synagogue, he stands up, he declares the truth of God's word, he delivers the word of the Lord, and then he walks with the people. He's present with the people. He cares for them. He shepherds these new converts. He, he encourages them. Continue in the grace of the Lord. He's not disconnected. He's very engaged. When I went to uh, seminary, when I went to Talbot, I had just the, the rich opportunity to um, spend a whole semester um, studying uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, the letter of 1 Thessalonians that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. <clears throat> and I was really marked, I was really formed, shaped in my view of what it means to be a pastor by the pastoral heart that Paul expresses through that letter. And he's writing to this church, he's encouraging this church, he's even correcting this church, but all of his writing, his instruction, his correction, it's underwritten by a a deep, personal, pastoral concern for their their spiritual welfare. And he writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, so, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We were willing to share with you our very lives because you had become very dear to us. That's what it looked like for Paul to continue in the grace. He wasn't just kind of on his own mission, but rather he was on mission for Jesus. He was becoming more like Jesus. And the man who once hated Jesus and his people and was killing Jesus' people and was ravaging the church had transformed to be more like, been transformed to be more like Jesus. And as he walked with Jesus, he started looking like Jesus and talking like Jesus and loving like Jesus. Do we look like that? Do we look like that as Christians today? Do we love our neighbor? Do we have a burden for our fellow believer? Do we have a burden for the one who's next to us that doesn't know Jesus, that's perishing? You see, that, that, that burden should be underwritten by this, by this sense of continuing with Jesus, giving rise to uh, a, a legitimate and sincere affection for one another. Does that make sense? So we, we move from the word of the Lord now to the wickedness of the lost. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so now we're like fast forwarding a week. Paul preaches this great sermon. They're hanging onto his legs. They invite him back to come next, to preach next week. Fast forward a week. And now Luke tells us that the next week, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathers Now, they couldn't be in the synagogue because the synagogue couldn't accommodate this many people. I think Luke is speaking hyperbolically here. I don't think he literally means the whole city, but I think he means throngs of people showed up. Thousands of people showed up. Maybe they had to congregate. Maybe they had to meet in in the local Greco-Roman amphitheater. But nevertheless, tons of people come out. And why do they come out? What are they wanting to hear? The word of the Lord. They're coming out because they want to hear this good news, the word of the Lord. So I said first that the gospel is the power of God to save, but second, I want to demonstrate now from this text that the gospel is also powerful to polarize. It's powerful to to divide. You see, the good news begins with bad news. If we don't first see the bad news, we will not appreciate the good news. And that bad news is offensive to many people in this life. You see, Jesus said that this would be the case. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said that the world would hate 
his people on account of him. In fact, Jesus says that he didn't come to bring peace, but that he came to bring a sword, right? Because he would be the most polarizing figure in all of human history. So look, let's see what happens. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So here's another group of Jews, maybe representing the leadership of the synagogue. They see all these people show up. They see all these Gentiles, these non-Jews from this city Antioch coming out, representing, showing up to hear Paul preach the word of God. And what are they filled with? Jealousy. And what does their jealousy give rise to? Contradicting Paul and his message, speaking out against Jesus and the gospel, even hating Paul, hating, reviling him. So there's like three strikes against them. They're full of jealousy, they're contradicting the message, and they're reviling God's messenger. Here's the contrast that we see in this passage. You either receive the gospel or you reject the gospel. There's no in-between. Jesus is clear that either you are with him or that you are against him. Jesus himself says, with respect to himself, there is no neutrality. If Jesus has called you here today to hear the gospel, to hear this preaching, to hear his name, then by his own words, it is impossible for you to go out the doors and remain neutral. You see, a deferred decision with respect to Jesus is a decision against Jesus. So what do we see? We see people are either receiving the gospel or vehemently rejecting it. Today is the day of salvation. Amen, church? Not tomorrow, not the next day. Today is the Lord's day. Tomorrow is the devil's day. I think that as we kind of live and move and have our being as Christians, as we embrace our calling as Jesus' people, walk in his footsteps, in, in, in labor by faith to fulfill the great commission that we should always be on the lookout for those whom God has prepared to hear the gospel. Amen? However, on the flip side, we should not be surprised. In fact, we should be prepared when the gospel provokes a negative and even harsh response. So, we see that these Jews are filled with jealousy, they contradict Paul, and they hate him. They hate him. They're reviling him. But now this leads us to God's gospel plan, which begins with the rejection of the gospel. Look at Paul and Barnabas in this moment. Is the heat turning up? I mean, think about it. They preached in the synagogue. Things went pretty well. They got invited back, right? People were hanging on to their legs as they're walking out. You know, they're encouraging them. And now it's a week later. It's the next Sabbath. And like the whole city turns out. Are the stakes high? The stakes, high, the stakes are high. And you have all the leaders of that synagogue now, a, a, a large contingent, a disproportionate percentage of the Jewish population in that local area, hating on Paul, hating on his message, opposing the gospel. Like, sometimes I'm, I want to like witness to somebody. I'm like, all right, I'm going to witness to this person right now. Lord, give me courage to witness to this person right now. And like I kind of try to start getting into that conversation and then this conversation starts to go sideways and I'm like, oh, it's just not going to work out. Or how, many of us, how many of us have been there? Yeah, just a few of you can sympathize. The heat is turning up, but as the heat turns up, so does their courage. They don't wuss out. They don't shrink back. What Luke says is that that as the, as the opposition mounts, as the stakes are raised, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. They manned up. They didn't fear man. They trusted God. And what did they say? They spoke out boldly saying, Paul says to, to these people, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Think about those words, it was necessary. Why was it necessary that the word of the Lord first, that the gospel first be spoken to those Jews who then in turn rejected and reviled, rejected the gospel and reviled Paul? Because that had always been the plan of God. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus himself, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
that the gospel will first go to the Jews in Jerusalem, and then it will go to the surrounding region of Judea, then it will go to the half-Jews in Samaria, and then it will go all to the Gentiles all around the world. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe first to the who? First to the Jew, then to the Greek. So there's a sense in which God has seen fit to send the message first to the Jews, then to the non-Jews, then to the peoples of the world, every tongue, tribe, and nation. But we begin to see that as the gospel goes to the Jews, that most of them reject it. And this is like a big confounding problem. Why is it that God's people reject their Messiah? In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, the apostle Paul wrestles with this question. He says, you know, if, if God's people have rejected the person that he has sent to them, then has the word of God failed? And Paul says, may it never be. Rather, it was God's plan and his infinite wisdom and sovereignty to send Messiah through the Jewish people. And that as they rejected him, that, that the gospel would then spread to the Gentiles. And in the fullness of time, after the gospel had spread throughout time and geography and all the peoples of the earth hear the gospel, in the fullness of time, God will use the reality that all the peoples of the earth are worshiping the Jewish Messiah, worshiping Jesus, not just as their Savior, but also as their Lord, and that that will provoke the jealousy of a preserved remnant of Israel, and, and that God will use that jealousy to bring them back to himself, and that will bring the consummation of all things. So there is some great gospel plan that God has by which, you know, his plan of redemption is proceeding. So Paul knows this, and Paul says, it was necessary first for me to speak the gospel to you. But also, it was necessary for Paul to preach the gospel to them because he was a Jewish man himself, and he cared for his people. And he was answering the call of Jesus in the Great Commission. He understood this truth, that, that to receive the gospel presupposed knowing and understanding and believing the gospel. And that believing the gospel implies living the gospel. Are you with me? And what does living the gospel imply? If you are living the gospel, then by definition, what are you doing with it? You're sharing it. Interesting bit of trivia. Whenever Scripture talks about sharing the gospel, the verbs, the language that's used is never soft. Scripture doesn't use the language of kind of sharing the gospel, offering the gospel, promoting the gospel. Whenever Scripture talks about the gospel, it talks about proclaiming the gospel, about heralding the gospel, announcing the gospel. That is exactly what Paul is doing. He knows that that's what he has been called to by Jesus in the Great Commission, to proclaim the good news, not just through his sermons, but through his life and through his personal interactions that he is an emissary of the king. He has been sent out to herald on behalf of his sovereign, the sovereign's message, the good news, the gospel. One of my favorite modern pastors that I like to follow and listen to. His name's David Platt. Some of you have heard of him. Um, he wrote a book, a, like a radical book, cleverly titled Radical. And in that, in that book, he says that the martyrs in church history, the martyrs did not die because they believed the gospel. They died because they proclaimed the gospel. Now, Paul's going to turn his attention from the necessity of proclaiming the gospel to these Jews to addressing their negative response to the gospel. The gospel's provoked a negative response in them. Verse 46, since you thrust it aside, because of this, we're going to do this. Paul's going to now offer a, a, a causal statement. Because you do this, we're going to do this. Since you thrust it aside, and that is like very strong, vivid language to depict a rejection of the gospel, a, a turning away of the offer of what comes through Jesus. And it's, it's an act of the will. Since you thrust aside the word of the Lord and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are going to turn to the Gentiles. 
Now, you've got to remember, the whole city is gathered. There's a ton of Gentiles present who are hearing this. Like, in the midst of this massive congregation, this massive gathering, probably in a public forum, the Jews are reviling Paul. They're speaking out against him. He lays the smack down on them and rebukes them. And then he says, because of your rejection, we are now turning our attention to everybody else. You could probably just feel it in the air in that moment. Returning to the Gentiles. Now, more on their response in a moment. I want us to see that Paul indicts the Jews on two counts, those, those Jews who were present who rejected the message. He says that they're guilty simultaneously of what? Of rejecting the message and what else? Of, of judging, rejecting and judging. Rejecting what? Rejecting the gospel, but judging what? He says judging themselves. That they are guilty of judging themselves. You're guilty of judging yourselves unworthy of what? I don't know about you, but like, so I glossed over that statement at first when I was studying this passage, but then, like, as I was digging in the text, I, I like thought, wow, that's a frightening proposition that one could judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That seems kind of um, scary, right? I think these two things are the flip side of the same coin. You see, their very act of rejecting God's provision in Christ demonstrates their own culpability before Him. <clears throat> uh, let me use this illustration to try to explain what's going on here. Um, how, many, how many art aficionados do we have here this morning? How many people appreciate and enjoy art? Let's say that we go to the Louvre and, and we, we observe, we stand in front of, we behold the Mona Lisa. One of, one of the most universally recognized, uh, most appreciated and celebrated pieces of art in the history of art, right? And let's say that as we're standing appreciating that great work, taking it in, you know, after that little moment, I turn to you and I say, I, I, I guess it's all right. I mean, she's not that attractive. I've seen better paintings. Would that assessment of that painting say more about the painting or more about me? Right? I have just judged myself unworthy of assessing the merits of, of artistic content, right? Let's say, for the sake of example, that you and I go to hear one of the greatest orchestras in the world. Where's one of the greatest orchestras in the world? Somebody last night said New York. Do we have one in L.A.? Of course you'd say Austin, Steve. <laughs> let's say that we go to New York and we hear, or we say the London Symphony Orchestra. Let's say we fly across the pond. We go to hear one of the greatest, most majestic symphonies, you know, authored by Beethoven, and we hear that, that symphony perfectly expressed and played by one of the greatest orchestras in our time, and we appreciate all the movements and, 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 and all the moments of that musical expression, and at the end of that experience, I kind of turn to you and say, I kind of prefer James Brown. <laughs> no disrespect to James Brown. But like, with that... Would that say more about the symphony and, and Beethoven and the orchestra or more about me? Like, I've just judged myself unworthy of being a credible musical critic, right? That's what, that's what he said. You reject Jesus who has been raised. You reject God's message of salvation. In your rejection, you judge yourselves unworthy of the eternal life that is only offered through him. You turn away God's appointed one. You turn away God's anointed one. See, Jesus isn't on trial. You're on trial. Now, in order to kind of drive home his, his rebuke, he just kind of like puts the cherry on top and he tells them that they don't even know their Bibles. So he goes in verse 47 back to the prophet Isaiah. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made to you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He quotes this messianic prophecy from, from Isaiah, and he's like, dude, 
Look at what Isaiah said, that I've made for you a light to the Gentiles. Salvation was always supposed to come through us to them. So why are you jealous that all the Gentiles are congregating hearing this good news? They were always supposed to congregate and hear this good news. Because through us as a people and through Messiah who would be, you know, who would be born of us as a people, the, the light to the rest of the world would be sent of God. You see, Jesus was always the light of the nations. Do you remember Simeon in the temple after Jesus was born? So Simeon beholds Jesus in the temple. He quotes this very same passage from Isaiah. Simeon says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And so Paul's like, you guys are tripping. You don't even know your Bibles. This was always the plan. It is a good thing that the Gentiles are hearing about Jesus. So in God's plan, there is rejection of the gospel, which he will use redemptively in salvation history, but there is also reception of the gospel. Look at verse 48. We take a positive turn here. And when the Gentiles heard this, remember, they're all standing there, right? All the Gentiles are there, they're listening, they're watching this heated exchange, they're like watching Paul put the WWF smackdown on these Jews that are opposing him. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, they hear Paul quote Isaiah and say that it was God's plan to bring reconciliation to all these people out there. And they're like, whoa, we're the beneficiaries of this good news. It applies not just to them as they talk about it and debate it in the synagogue, it, it's for, this, is, this is a message of good news of salvation for us. And what happens in verse 48? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord. They began rejoicing and glorifying the gospel, Jesus. So they rejoice on account of the fact that God offers them too freedom and forgiveness by coming simply to faith in Jesus. And so like we're watching God's plan of, of salvation unfold right in front of us in this passage. But the positive response doesn't stop there. Luke continues in the second half of verse 48. Are you with me? This is really important. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And as many as were what? appointed to eternal life, believed. So not all the Gentiles there that heard uh, believed and were saved, but, but all those who were appointed. Now, I want us to note that there's two verbs in this statement, appointed and believed. Do you see that? As many as were appointed, they believed. And so I want to simultaneously affirm the sovereignty of God in salvation but also the response or the responsibility of man. You see, the Gentiles who believe, the verb is active, it's something that they do. The Gentiles who believe in Jesus are all those who were appointed by God to eternal life. The verb that's used here um, in translated appointed carries this idea of um, first of all, it's a passive. It's something that happens to you. It carries this idea of assigning somebody or something to a certain classification. They had been assigned to the class of those who would receive eternal life. This is, this is an unmitigated expression that stresses God's sovereign work in, in moving people to come to faith in Jesus. His sovereign hand is at work in salvation. You're like thinking in this moment, but wait. Didn't we just talk about how man is responsible? Didn't we just talk about how these Jews rejected Jesus as their, their crucified and risen Savior? Didn't we just talk about their free will? I want to simultaneously affirm man's responsibility with God's sovereignty. I think Scripture is clear on both points. But, but first, in order for us to, 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 to kind of resolve this tension, I think that we need to recognize, we need to realize something that's absolutely theologically imperative. Are you with me? Because this, this has implications for the very sum and substance of the gospel. You see, something radical happened to the constituent nature of humanity in the fall. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that in Adam all died. He didn't say that in Adam all became spiritually sick or that all became spiritually frail. He says in Adam all 
died, dead, muerta. I think that's right. Scripture is clear that, we're, that we are born, our default nature, that, that we are born dead in our trespasses and sin. Now, do we have free will to do what we want to do? Yes, we do. We have freedom insofar as we have the ability to choose what we want to choose. But it's the want to that is broken. It is the will that is hopelessly corrupt. It is our desires, our, our, our heart, our will that has become utterly enslaved in its sinfulness. In, it, in his sinfulness, man's will is it's utterly dead. It, it is in bondage. We hear about the bondage of the will. You see, man chooses to rebel against God because his will is set against God. His will is hopelessly corrupted in his sinfulness. His will is set inwardly on himself, and his will is opposed to God. So can man choose? Yes. Can he choose God? Absolutely not, because his will is dead to God. He is dead in his transgressions and sins. Man doesn't choose God because he won't choose God, and man won't choose God because in his default spiritual condition of depravity, he cannot choose God. Now, if you don't believe me, just look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? It what? It cannot. That's an expression of utter inability. It cannot. The perfect picture of our spiritual depravity is the picture of Lazarus in the tomb. Was Lazarus sick? No, he was what? Dead. Dead. <clears throat> Could Lazarus do anything to help himself? No. What was the only solution to Lazarus's problem, to his state of deadness? Jesus. Jesus had to call him out of the grave. Jesus had to bestow as the God-man who had authority even over death itself, bestow life, breathe life back into his body and call him from death. That's a picture of man's default will and spiritual condition apart from God. You see, we're not merely corrupted by sin, we're dead in sin. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one understands. No one seeks God. No one. No one understands. Jesus himself says in John chapter 6 verse 44, and no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He doesn't say no one may come to me. He says no one what? Can. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me first draws him. Some of you are pushing back on this idea in your mind, thinking like, no, 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 like this, this, I don't believe this. Let me ask you this question. We stand under the authority of God's word, which is clear that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Are you with me? Do you really believe that a spiritually dead person is capable of undertaking a spiritual act that brings about their spiritual life. No. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the teacher of Israel, this is the guy that if anyone was going to be saved, if anyone was going to enjoy right standing with God, righteousness, by observing the law, it was him. He was the best scholar of the Bible, and he was the best liver of the Bible. And Jesus meets with him at night. Nicodemus approaches him at night, which is a demonstration of the fact in the first place that Nicodemus is a spiritual outsider and that he's in the dark to begin with. But Nicodemus approaches Jesus, says all this stuff. Jesus doesn't even answer his question. Jesus says, truly I say to you, if anyone would even see the kingdom of God, not enter it, not be inside of it, just see it, just see it from the outside that he must be born again. Something must happen to him. And the word there has a double meaning, that he must be born again, literally be reconstituted, be reborn, be made new, but, but again also means from above, that, that from heaven needs to come a, a reconstitution of somebody in order for them to even apprehend the kingdom of heaven. 
because by, de- by default we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that which is dead has no ability to do any life-giving or life-saving work for itself. Somebody has to intervene on our behalf. See, spiritual life must be given to us before we can do anything at all that is pleasing to God. That's why we say as Protestants that regeneration precedes faith, that God has to do a saving work in us, that He has to resuscitate and reconstitute our will spiritually. He has to make us new creations before we even have the ability to believe the gospel, to respond in our will, which has been awakened and renewed, and receive and believe Jesus and be justified by faith. And you know what this does? It makes God so great. It makes Him so glorious. It makes Him so majestic in our salvation. And it makes us very small. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing because that should make us look to God and say, God, you are great. You are glorious. You are, you are, you are the worker of miracles because you, in your goodness, you took the initiative to move towards me while I was your enemy, while I was opposed to you, while my will was bent away from you and inwardly towards itself. When I was the object of my desires, not you, you moved toward me. You reached down into the depths. You pulled my life up. You breathed new life into it. You gave me the ability to see Jesus, your son, the means of my salvation, to trust in him, it's because of your goodness and initiative that I'm saved. It has nothing to do with me. And that should lead our hearts to worship. That should lead our hearts to say, God, you are great and you are good and I love you. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Now we have to fast forward because I'm running behind as usual. So he says that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Guess what happens next? Guess what happens next? Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It's the fourth time the word of the Lord is mentioned. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you want to know what follows from genuine conversion? Do you want to know what follows from a heart that has been taken from death to life and recognizes the gracious initiative and the merciful intervention of God? You want to know what follows from that? True evangelism. It's the spreading of the gospel. We see a great result here at the end of this passage. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, not just the city, but the whole geographical region. What was the key to that great result? What was the key to the word of God spreading throughout that whole region? You ready for it? Verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken. Verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The word, the word, the word, the word. That is the key to what's going on. That's the key to everything. Simply speaking God's message. Do you, know, you want to know why this city, why this whole region was turned upside down? It's not because Paul was such a persuasive speaker. It's not because he was such a skilled orator. It's not because he came in and spoke on public policy, ethical theory, or arts and culture. It's because he walked into town and he spoke the word of the Lord. Amen. That's what it looked like for Paul as a man of God to continue in the grace of God. And if we've been sitting in church our whole lives and we have minimal or no desire to speak the word of the Lord, then we must examine ourselves because something is wrong. The passage concludes with gospel persecution. Verse 50, man persecutes, but God provides in the midst of it. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. This great thing happens. We're like, man, this passage is ending on a high note. And all of a sudden, they get run out of town. And then we think, man, the passage is ending on a low note. But you know, the more I study the Bible, the more I just realize that the whole Bible is like this one big, but God statement. You know what I'm saying? Like even in Ephesians 2, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But God, in His 
love made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly. Like, so they get persecuted, but God provides. Paul has preached that God provided throughout the Old Testament, that, that God has provided through his son, that God provides life even leading to faith. Shoot, God even provide, provided Paul and Barnabas for all these people, right, to bear witness. And then as Paul and Barnabas are getting persecuted, he provides for Paul and Barnabas. First, he provided the instruction of Jesus, who told his disciples that when they're sent out and their message about him is rejected by his people, to shake the dust off their feet. And that's Jesus' way of saying, like, look, um, when, when people come back from Gentile territory into Jewish territory, they shake the dust off their feet because they feel like there's this sense in which culturally uh, that ground was defiled. And Jesus is saying that, that those who are my people, the Jews, if they reject my message, then treat them like outsiders, treat them like Gentiles. And so that's what they do in this moment. They shake the dust from their feet against them as, as a demonstration that they stand under God's judgment. But they don't get discouraged, right? Like if I got run out of here, if you guys were just like, you're preaching too long, we're running you out of the building, I would get discouraged. <clears throat> but even though they're getting run out of town, they don't get discouraged. What do we see? Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with what? They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to bring the worship team up and take the lights down. Why do you think, in closing, why do you think that even in the midst of persecution, being run out of town, having the leaders of that city inspired against them. Why do you think that Paul and Barnabas and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit? I think it's because they knew that Jesus was their righteousness, that in his life he had lived perfectly, and they looked to him and found their hope in him. They knew that Jesus was their forgiveness, that in his death he secured their freedom and their forgiveness, that they knew that Jesus was their victory, that in his resurrection, he was the down payment and the guarantee of their eternal life. They knew that Jesus was their righteousness, that Jesus was their forgiveness, that Jesus was their victory. But above and beyond all the benefits that Jesus extended to them in salvation, they could have joy and they were filled with the Spirit because they knew that Jesus was their everything. He was their everything. He was the end. He was the supreme object of all of their affections. And so as we approach the communion table in just a moment, I want to invite you to do business in your heart, to do business with the Lord, and, and, and to confess, Jesus, you are my righteousness. You are my forgiveness. You are my victory. And maybe to repent before him if he is not your everything. Maybe to cry out to him, that if he is not the supreme object, the end of all of your affections, that he would make himself the supreme object, the end of all your affections. Amen? On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.